be more like a teaching series rather than necessarily preaching, although there will be some exhortations in it as well. And I'm going to try to be aware of the time as much as I can. I think I'm a little bit longer today than I was intending to go, but hopefully we'll have some time for questions at the end. If you could save them for there, that would be appreciated. Um, So this afternoon, we're going to begin a series on the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And I have really no idea how long this will take us. The confession itself is fairly long, and we have time constraints on us for each session. But that's what I'm going to be teaching on on the Lord's Day afternoons for the foreseeable future when I'm to teach. And I decided to not just jump right into the confession this afternoon. I don't want to just look at the first chapter right away, but instead to speak towards confessionalism. confessionalism. And firstly then, a problem that is before us when we think of this topic, especially because we are part of an American culture that has increasingly rejected the notion of absolute truth. For a while now, many have championed their so-called own truth. What's true for them may not be true for another person, in other words. Which, of course, you know, is, is ridiculous, and it makes no consequence of the word truth at all. And from that, more recently, people have claimed that they can decide what their gender is regarding biological sex, or disregarding biological sex, and it's in an increasingly growing list, too. Something like 52 supposed genders exist now. And as well as you have people deciding and even imposing their own personal pronouns upon others. And it seems to be getting worse. This idea of truth is relative in our society. It seems to be getting worse. And there's no signs of it letting up unless God should intervene and have mercy on us. But when it comes to churches, to Christian churches and what they believe, they're not immune from this sort of thinking. And this is a problem Because Christians, by nature, are a confessing people. To be a Christian is to be someone who confesses something. We believe certain and specific things. And churches need to be able to contend for the truth and to stand for it. And that's nothing new for the church. And so before getting to the actual content of the confession, I wanted to address some matters of prolegomena, some some first things, introductory things that we need to establish first before we get to the actual context of the confession. And so we're thinking then, why is confess why, why confessionalism, confessionalism in the first place? What's the need for it? Why is it a good thing? And what are the benefits or uses of being confessional? And of course, we for our context are thinking of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, but the reality is that everyone is, in a sense, confessional. Everyone has credo statements. Credo simply means, I believe. And, we, and what we should think of in light of this is, is what we believe novel and individualistic? Where do these beliefs come from? From our own wisdom, or from some other person, or from an infallible and eternal God? And this is also a personal study for us as a congregation, because as you know, we decided to vote to part ways with the Southern Baptist Convention last year. And that means that we are also at a point of seeking to embrace a confession that is in accord with what the scriptures teach that isn't dependent upon the Southern Baptist Convention. First Family Church, when it was first planted, uh, before any of us that are here tonight or this afternoon in this room, including myself, uh, had a very short brief 
essentially like a seeker-sensitive confessional statement. But about 10 to 12 years ago, we adopted the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 since it was more robust and because we were part of the SBC anyway. And since that's no longer the case, it doesn't make sense for us to hold to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 any longer. And so the confession that the elders have put before you to consider in a vote next month is, of course, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. I've been quoting it for many years in sermons, and the recent Baptist Catechism series that we just preached through when we were doing a Sunday evening service, that whole catechism, 114 questions, was based off of what the London Baptist Confession of Faith teaches as well. Um, It's a historic Protestant confession that has stood the test of time for over 300 years, which, when you consider the trajectory of many churches today in our culture, I think it's a very refreshing and a healthy thing to do because it's very popular in Christendom today to downplay doctrine, to reject the historic confessions, to downplay or dismiss confessions, creeds, catechisms, and systems of doctrine or you know of christian teaching and theology and this sort of anti-doctrinal attitude because of this you know doctrines divide mindset it's it's really to blame for the sad state that much of the church in the west is in today And, and, and the scriptures are clear we are to teach and we need to be specific in what it is that we teach Because Satan seeks to attack the church outrightly, as well as to make the church open to attacks so that people are deceived. Remember what the Apostle Paul calls this time that we're living in. He calls it in Galatians 1.4, a present evil age. And in apocalyptic language, John proclaims that Satan being wounded because of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus, that he is busy launching full-out attacks against the church in this present evil age. Revelation 12, 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. A flood of what? A flood, really, of deception. And a confession church subscribing to a historic, robust confession will act like a safeguard against those deceptions from the deceiver. More on that later and over the coming months, certainly. But these tendencies of churches to be opposed to doctrinal statements, to be anti-confessional, comes from, I think, one of three main points or places. And all of them downplay the authority of God's word, either knowingly or accidentally. And so we'll go over those three places now. The first way the church attempts to be opposed to the confessions is by being... Oops. I'm a little behind, so uh, maybe I skipped this one. So the first way, I'm doing my best with the PowerPoint. I've never tried this before. But the first way that the church is opposed to confession, um, that, that Satan attempts to deceive the churches is and to be anti-confessional. And part of the reason why we're acting that this way is because so many churches are just satisfied with minimalistic statements. That's a problem to mention. Most churches are just fine with bare-bones, minimalistic doctrine statements. They, in fact, reject long and explicit documents as divisive, but they still have some kind of formal statement. If you want it, you know, as a homework assignment, just go ahead and Google churches near me and then search their websites 
and, if you can, and see if you can figure out what they believe from their website. It's not uncommon to find churches that don't list any of their beliefs at all. Or they may call them values, or they may call them uh, distinctives. And if you do find a what we believe section, it's most often going to be brief. Five, six points of doctrine, perhaps. And typically, those will be short as well. You could take a look for yourself. I'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe you'll even find some good ones. There are good ones out there, of course. But generally speaking, and here we are, there is within Christendom a movement to be anti-confessional and to be anti-creedal. Sometimes it's hard to tell if that's on purpose or if it's accidental. It could be just that they see other churches doing this kind of a thing and they look at the church and they deem it to be successful because there's large numbers of people. And unfortunately, that is how many people determine success is because there's large crowds. And then so they see that and they think, oh, well, maybe I should do that too. That could be an accidental reason as to why they do that if they mimic them. Or it could be purposeful. It could be a decision to not get like entangled in doctrine in light of the fruits of relativism. The church as it exists in the world, isn't immune to the ideas of existential relativism, anti-authoritarianism, and historical isolationism. And speaking of this, in his day, which is 1866, Horatius Boner, Bonar, in the preface to the Catechism of the Scottish Reformation, said, Every new utterance of skepticism especially on religious subjects, and by so-called religious men, is cheered as another howl of that storm that is to send all creeds to the bottom of the sea. The flowing or reciting tide is watched, not for the appearance of truth above the waters, but for the submergence of dogma. And then listen to this, especially. To any book or doctrine or creed that leaves men at liberty to worship what God they please, there is no objection. But to anything that would fix their relationship to God, that would infer, infer their responsibility for the faith, they would imply that God has made an authoritative announcement as to what they are to believe. They object with protestation in the name of injured liberty. And one wonders what Bonner would say today. I suspect that he would think in most cases that the skeptics have won. It's now the exception and not the rule for many churches today to be up front with their dogma, with their doctrine. A dogma even sounds like a bad word to some of us. I'm sure it, it sounds too rigid. It's too firm. But there's nothing wrong with the term. The 1828 Webster Dictionary defines dogma as a settled opinion, a principle, maxim, or tenet, a doctrinal notion particularly in matters of faith and philosophy, as dogmas of the church. It is good to have dogmas, friend, if they are true and biblically founded. And we need to be public with them. Now, this first problem lends itself to the second issue we face. Another way that Satan seeks to subvert the kingdom of God and the advancement of the gospel is by being anti-confessional in another way for the sake of elevating the scriptures themselves. And that's a bit tricky, isn't it? Because the scriptures all are the ultimate authority. The historic Protestant confessions all affirm that. Every single one of them affirms that scripture is the ultimate authority. Yet you have many people today who 
reject the notion of subscribing to and holding to a confession because they'll say the Bible is all that we need. That's the second problem. It's called, more specifically, the problem of Biblicism. Now, first we need to define Biblicism because on the surface, that word doesn't sound bad, right? I mean, it's got the word Bible in it. And we like the Bible. We love the Bible. We're people of the book. And we know that the scriptures are the authority. Whereas catechisms, creeds, and confessions are an authority, but they're subordinate to the word. And so what is biblicism in the negative usage? There could be a positive way of using the term. Context will determine that. But how is it bad? Well, biblicism in the negative sense plays a major role in the modern rejection of catechisms among, and confessions among evangelicals. Biblicism, biblicism is the notion that exists that says, all I need is my Bible. And that, that sounds good because we know the scriptures are sufficient, but we must not forget that no scripture is of private interpretation and we don't have the right to take up our Bible and make it say whatever it is that we want it to say. R. Scott, R. Scott Clark notes that Biblicism is the attempt to understand Scripture by oneself and by itself. In other words, in isolation from the history of the church and in isolation from the communion of the saints. In Biblicism, the interpreter, not Scripture, becomes sovereign. So it's, you see, hopefully, the, the danger that is behind that. This notion of Biblicism was really born out of what is called, or comes to be known as, the Campbellite movement in the early part of the 19th century, where a group of believers basically started what amounted to an anti-doctrinal movement. It's the context of Horatius of Bonar's quote, even, and looking, because his quote was in 1866, that's, you know, right in the middle of the 19th century. And looking back on it, on it, we see it as an anti-doctrinal movement. That's a bit of an oversimplification, but essentially that's what it was. Mormonism started soon after this Campbellitism took hold of evangelicalism. The denomination, the Church of Christ, which we understand uh, teaches baptismal regeneration, right? which we don't see that in God's word, they directly trace their roots to the teachings of Alexander Campbell and what's called the Restoration Movement. And so what you had happen was this intentional anti-doctrinal movement, a rejection of using the historic confessions for what on the surface seemed like a good cause for the sake of unity, but in fact it was a very bad thing. And out of this restoration movement came the phrase many of you have probably heard. It sounds like a good phrase. It may even elicit an amen, but I hope it doesn't. You have heard this before, I trust, no creed but Christ or no creed but the Bible people say that and on the surface it sounds like a good thing but what it really is is a very bad creed it's one thing to say no creed but christ but what christ are you talking about are you talking about the muslim jesus are you talking about mormon jesus what about the jehovah witness jesus you see you must be able to stand understand who christ is and what is meant by saying no creed but christ or no book but the Bible. And it might, it might sound pious to say that, but it leaves a lot open to interpretation and dangerous interpretation. See, because everyone has an interpretation. 
And so even if this notion, no creed but Christ or no book from the Bible, if it's born from a zeal to maintain the unique place of Scripture as our ultimate authority, it's ultimately still deficient. Rather than thinking that a confession of faith is an attack against sola scriptura, it's in fact the only way to affirm sola scriptura. Louis Burkhoff says, or Louis Burkhoff, says every church, association, denomination, or church member has its dogmas. Even the churches that are constantly decrying dogmas that have them in effect. When they say they want a Christianity without dogma, they are by that very statement declaring a dogma. You see, you can't get away from it. Creeds and confessions are inescapable because the very definition of a Christian is that he is a believer. He is one who confesses with his mouth the Lord Jesus. Romans 10.9 Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No creed but Christ or the Bible is an untenable position. And if you want to affirm sola scriptura, which I hope we do, we need to be clear about what the scriptures say and not leave it open to deception and whims of what one may think of at any given time. Further, it's untenable because Christian churches have preachers. And for those who say no creed but the Bible, they don't have preachers that simply get up into the pulpit and then start reading scripture without any commentary on it at all. As soon as a preacher begins to exegete and explain a passage, you've contradicted no creed but the Bible or Christ. Because at that point, an explanation is being offered, and that's all that a confession is. And if a minister is not reading the Bible in the original language of the Hebrew or the Greek, and he uses a translation of his own language, well then, even there, we're having problems with this idea of no confession or no creed but the Bible or no creed but Christ, because we must consider translation sciences and the reasons that they use for choosing specific words. The whole idea of no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, is an untenable position. And even for the person who hears the preached word, or even if a person heard just the scriptures read aloud themselves, you would be hearing it through the filter of your own personal impressions that have been shaped and molded by a number of opinions, whether good or bad. So, Biblicism is not a tenable view. What is, or what it is, is an ignorant view that leads to confusion in oneself and to others. Everyone has creeds, dogma, and doctrines. R.L. Dabney on this point said this, He says, I do not want to make the point that Christians are not divided between those who have creeds and confessions and those who do not. Rather, because of course we all have them, right? Rather, they are divided between those who have public documents subject to public scrutiny, evaluation, and critique, and those who have private creeds and confessions that are often improvised, unwritten, and thus not open to public scrutiny, not susceptible to evaluation, and crucially and ironically, not therefore subject to testing by Scripture to see whether they are true. The, the only real difference, and Dabney goes on to say, the only real difference between these professedly creedless bodies and those who hold to a confession of faith is that their unwritten creeds are less manly, 
lest honest and distinct, and therefore more fruitful of discord among themselves than a published confession is. And then in very bad cases, this anti-confessionalism and biblicism leads to the third category, which is as to why people reject confessions. And that's simply to be acceptable to the world. There are churches that seek to distance themselves from the faith delivered to the saints with intent to establish themselves as a body of faith that supposedly corrects and modernizes the church. And so they dismiss the creeds and confessions. But again, there's no way to actually be anti-creedal and anti-confessional. They just end up coming up with dogma or beliefs of their own that they feel are right without caring much about what the whole of God's word says. And for example, so I'm going to read to you a list of these. I found this on a Presbyterian church in Brentwood, Tennessee. I was, I was trying to find this, what, I, what I remembered as a Presbyterian church in Brentwood, um, but it was actually a Methodist church in Brentwood that I was thinking of. But I found this Presbyterian church in Tennessee, and this Presbyterian congregation, rather than holding to the Westminster standards, which we appreciate and it, we would note that it's full of much rich and sound doctrine. This Presbyterian church instead decided to list a number of credo statements. I believe statements. So listen to these. So we believe church, and remember this is the third category, where a church rejects being confessional and holding to the ancient creeds and confessions out of reason to be in sync with the world. So they say... We believe church is a sacred place. And, and notice, we believe, right? They're credo statements. You can't, you can't be anti-confessional and then not still be confessional. You're just going to confess something else. So we believe church is a sacred place where we come together to share our beliefs, doubts, joys, and struggles without fear of being rejected by others or by God. We believe that love, not doctrine, holds us together. We believe the deepest expression of our faith is found in the way we treat others. We believe it is important to take the Bible seriously, but not always literally. We believe it is important for faith to value both the mind and the heart. We believe Jesus shows us what God is like and what being full of God is like. We believe that we learn from one another's diverse experiences and perspectives, and it's okay if we don't share all of the exact same beliefs. We believe listening to others and respecting them is a deeply spiritual act, even when we disagree. Not all claims to the truth are the same, to be sure, but we believe every claim should be measured by love. So, I mean, that utter relativism in the church. We believe the wisdom offered from other faith traditions can complement and enrich our spiritual journeys. Our faith is defined by Jesus, but not necessarily confined to Jesus. We believe church should be a place that welcomes those who believe in God some of the time, or none of the time, or all of the time. We believe all are created in the image of God and should be treated with dignity and love. That's the first okay one, fully okay one. Uh, we don't just welcome LGBTQIA plus people, but we affirm them, and we believe God does too. We believe we're called to embody the same kind of profound compassion that was seen in Jesus' life, and we believe we're called to follow in the footsteps of Christ by being in solidarity with the oppressed and working toward justice, Hope, peace, joy, love for all. So in other words, the social gospel of this congregation. So you could see 
how they've come up with these statements from themselves and how it's a departure from what the Bible actually says at nearly every level. They, they may not value doctrine by their own admission, but what they don't see is that what they value are in fact doctrines. But from where, right? They're the doctrines of men. They're not doctrines from the Lord. Some of it sounds biblical, true. But these credo statements of theirs put them at odds with the Bible. And that's a very extreme example. You know, most aren't going to be like that. This is an example of that progressive Christianity, which of course is a whole other religion that we need to be aware of because they twist the faith. For the rest of the time, though, I want us to think about the benefits and the use of a confession. And this will be really brief even in light of what we could say. Um, But I don't want to assume anything here either. So let's be clear about what a confession is. A confession is shorthand for a confession of faith. And therefore, a confession is a collection of doctrinal and theological statements that seek to explain what the Bible says about certain topics. That's what a confession is. It's a tool. It's something that exists to help us. You can think of it even in the common way of how we might use confession. Uh, If you make a confession, like in a court, you're reporting on what you believe happened in a specific instance. So a confession of faith is like that. It's a report on what you believe. When we refer, and specifically to what a church will teach, when we refer to holding to a confession, what we are saying is that this is what we believe the Bible to teach in the area of the topics that the confession mentions. And in this case, and this is a big advantage, friends, don't miss this, we are speaking in light of a historic confession, one that other believers, people who possess the same Holy Spirit as you and I, people who love the same Lord God as you and I, this is what they believe and held to as well. And again, it stood the test of time for over 300 years. It means that we not only have unity and peace with each other, but also we stand in peace and unity with people from previous generations. I might add, that's why it's a good thing to also, as a congregation, to affirm and hold to the historic creeds, like the Apostles, the Athanasian, and the Nicene Creed. These are, are, there are Christians that have held to these to guard against deception for nearly 2,000 years, and we're going to see them in glory. And personally, I think that's wonderful. Praise God that we can stand in unity and peace with brothers who are, and sisters who are long in glory. And whatever differences we have, those will be worked out in glory as well. So a confession is a collection of statements that have the aim to represent what is true of God's word. And there's clarity brought out by them. The more detailed, the better so that they can be critiqued and discussed and examined against the scripture. Remember that quote from Dabney. When you have a, a very short confession or no confession at all, except for like no you know, book but the Bible, that can't be critiqued against the scripture without a lot of other questions. Having a detailed one is good to hold it up to scripture so that we might see that scripture is in fact the authority. And that brings us to some important points. Uh, confessions are not equal to scripture. Firstly, confessions, the historic confessions, are not the word of God. Simply put, they're the words of man. They are the words of man hoping to explain what God says about specific topics. Confessions 
serve the scriptures. They are subordinate to scripture and not the other way around. Scripture is infallible, it's without error, and the confessions can potentially contain error. Uh, Just like a sermon could contain error, right? And for example, as a church, we're not thinking of subscribing to the Westminster Confession, although it's a very good confession. But as Baptists, we would disagree with it on some points. And confessions in that light could be revised. In fact, uh, we should see the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and as a revision. And, it's, I mean, it's obviously there's the First London Confession that was written in 1644. And then, we'll talk about this actually next week, but this, this is the Second London Confession, 1677, published in 1689. But these documents can be revised. And so, and it, the Second London Baptist Confession is a revision, and I would also argue an improvement upon the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I'm not just speaking about the areas on baptism and covenants. If you hold the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Confession of Faith side by side, there is much in agreement. Uh, Really, the Baptists copied off the Presbyterians for the most part. Um, But it's still, I think, an improvement, even more so beyond just the categories of covenant and baptism. Mark Jones, a Presbyterian in good standing in the PCA, affirms that the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith improved on chapter 2 in the Confession, which concerns theology proper, our doctrine of God. But Scripture, Scripture, we can't revise Scripture. We would never want to. Who can improve upon what God has done? Nobody. And in that, confessions then are very much like a sermon or a theological book. A sermon or an aspect of a sermon is that it seeks to explain what the Bible means. A theological book does the same thing. They cover certain topics based on Scripture and they seek to explain them. They're not equal to Scripture. Confessions are like that in the same way. And that brings us to another point. Confessions are not all-encompassing. They aren't meant to cover everything that the Bible says and teaches. They couldn't possibly do that, right? The wealth of Scripture is too vast. But in light of this, I mean, if you look at some commentary sets of guys, like John Owens has these huge eight-volume books just on the letter to the Hebrews. right? So a confession could never seek to explain everything that the Bible is teaching. But in light of this, we might note that not all confessions are created equal. Some do a better job of hitting subjects than others, but the subjects that are chosen are chosen because they are, in the minds of those who formed it and drafted it, they are areas of significant doctrinal matters that emphasize what we believe in light of what other denominations believe or what the world is teaching. Now, I said a moment ago that confessions are like a sermon or a theological book and how they seek to explain scripture, and that's true, but it also differs in a very important way. Although they aren't intended to be all-encompassing, they are intended to make comments on those necessary categories for many to have true agreement on substantial issues for community. And that's why a confession like the Westminster or the Belgic or the Second London Baptist Confession are so detailed. Sure, you can have a small confession. And on the surface, it seems like it will allow for greater opinions and views But what that actually will do is lead to a division that fosters beneath the surface. If people care about the truth, that is. 
And so a good confession is going to be detailed on a number of important points, doctrinal points, so that there can be a cheerful and peaceful agreement among many brothers and sisters. And contrary to what some think about confessions, they are created to bring about unity. Confession of faith is created to bring about unity. Now you see many of those kinds of congregations that I listed in the three categories early on, they think they don't do that. In their opinion, these confessions, these long doctrinal statements, they feel like they breed division. When the first Baptist faith and message was published in 1920, that was even part of the part of the brevity behind it, to not be specific in the hopes that more could affirm it as it was. And I won't sugarcoat this. In a way, of course, confessions do affirm division. I mean, you can't have unity without a possibility for a division in this fallen world, right? Uh, Whereas we note that there is truth, we also see that there is error as well. But the point of a confession is to say that there is a general consensus among us as a group of believers. Even Even if one can't fully subscribe to it, just admit that, that's fine, be humble about that. But the point of holding to a confession as authority, not the ultimate authority, the Bible is still the ultimate authority. And in that, The point is about not creating division. It's about bringing unity. Remember what the scriptures say, Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's a blessing to dwell in unity, to believe the same things, to love the same way, to worship in the same way. And when it comes down to it, there is a right way for all things, and there is a false way for many things. The problem with us, with us though, is that we are contending with a nature impacted by sin, and even though we have been saved Corruption still remains in us from the fall. We have been made a new creation, but the effects of that fall in nature remain to a degree and lessen as we mature in the faith, but it won't fully depart until we're glorified. And if you're familiar with Scripture at all, you know that from Genesis to Revelation, God is making it very clear that there will be people who teach false things. There, there's no time period in this present evil age that it's going to become a present good age and just no false teaching will exist that will come in the in the coming age when christ comes again we see it in the garden we see it throughout the old covenant israel and the new testament is ripe with warnings about false teachers and the abuse of god's word and confessions and creeds (coughs) catechisms they were put together when there was a specific need of them in light of heterodoxy (coughs) and heresy, different levels of error and disagreement. Now, heresy and false teaching is a problem, of course, and we often think of it as a negative thing, and of course it is, and it won't exist in the new heavens and the new earth. It's bad. It should grieve us when people don't handle God's word rightly, that when there are people who twist it, not in an accidental way is one thing, but purposefully to deceive is a whole nother story, a higher name. But in a way, 
it's good that there is heresy and false teaching. And that's an intriguing statement, in, or there is an intriguing statement in Paul's letter to the Corinthians on this matter. You might remember that there were some problems with the way they observed the Lord's Supper. There were some that were doing it sinfully. There were some that were getting drunk at it. There were others that were keeping the poor um, at bay. And verse 19 sheds some light on the issue of division. It says that there must be factions or divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So whereas division is bad, some good comes from it here in this fallen world. Some division is needed. Some division exists to show that there are some who are genuine and some who are not. And a confession is formed and helps us so that we know where that division is. And you have to look at these things on individual accounts. Now, there could be instances or, or differences in interpretation without a need for division. That is even common in churches that have a solid and robust confession. There could be differences that do require division, but it's a charitable division where both parties recognize genuine faith in each other. And then there's the kind of division where fellowship can't be permitted, like with what happened at the Reformation, right? With Martin Luther and the direction that the church had went in to the point of where it had this new identity. It was Roman Catholic as opposed to just simply being Catholic. And division was required. And division is still needed today with Rome. There is a, there are many people today who would reject that. I know that uh, Francis would reject that. The, the lady John mentioned, uh, we had a Lillian out in front of the clinic. We had a really good conversation with her. And she said a lot of things that sounded like just like the way we would say them. But then there was, you have to, with a specific question, we saw the difference. When we said, well, what do you feel about justification by faith alone? And once you said alone, she was like, oh, well, no, not that. But she was saying that she would go to heaven based upon grace. She even really didn't believe in purgatory, it seemed like. And she said that uh, it was all the mercy of Christ. But then once you talked about justification by faith alone, that's when we saw her Roman Catholic colors come out. And so there's still no peace with Rome to this day because of that. In fact, Rome's own confessions and creeds in Trent say that if anyone who says that you are justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. That's Rome's view of us. And so sometimes division requires separation. <clears throat> but not every time. And you have to view those on individual accounts. Uh, the last point I wanted to make this afternoon is that holding to a confession is a biblical idea. You know, this isn't just something that people thought of to do, that this is something that really we glean from the scriptures themselves. So first, we should seek to be settled as much as we can be concerning doc doctrine and theology. That's a good thing. It, you, I mean, I'm the, I can understand how we might think that it sounds prideful. Oh, well, you, what do you mean you're settled? But it's a good thing, actually. This statement flies in the face of what is popular today. It's looked upon as our culture, as a virtue to be flexible, uh, to not be dogmatic. And I want to tell you, you know, forget that. Be dogmatic. Be rigid. Have a backbone. And now if you're wrong, admit that and make a change. But when something is true, and it's true because God's word says it's true, 
then it is right to be firm. There are some things we shouldn't be dogmatic about, of course, but even still, dig deep into the Word of God and form opinions and be able to back them up. You're, at, you're in danger if you don't. And it can, you're in danger of being deceived. And a confession, a good one, a sound one, will help you in that regard. Listen to a few texts. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, right? They're not just the readers of God's word. They shepherd and teach God's word to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measures of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You see, be rigid. Know what the Word says. A confession will help you in that, so that we can be safe from the flood of deceit that the enemy seeks to impose upon the church. The author of the letter to Hebrews says, which is probably the Apostle Paul, but there, that could be one of those things that we could have division on and not have to separate over. Hebrews, <laughs> Hebrews 5.11-14. to 14. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. So, good to be skilled in the word of righteousness, right? Again, stand in it. Be firm. Understand it. Since he is a child... Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see, my point is, is that a confession will help you to grow in maturity if that confession is biblical. Because remember, it's not just you who's, who's saying this. There, you know, especially in the case of something like the Son of London Baptist Confession of Faith, that there are tens of thousands, hundreds of perhaps hundreds of thousands of people who have held to it and confessed it as well. People with the same spirit as you. It will protect you from being heretical. You have to wonder, is the reason that false teaching is so prevalent today if it's related to the fact that confessions are not held to and when churches do have them, they never use them. They do a poor job of using them. And creeds would do the same thing for a church. So take a look at this picture. If you can see it, my eyes are bad. You've probably seen it before. The, the historical documents do not replace the Bible. They protect the soundness of biblical interpretation. Creeds and confessions of faith are useful tools which keep the church from repeating age-old heresies. So here, if you just have the Bible, then it, this says interpretation without history. Think of this as, you know, the path that you're supposed to be on. Well, you go going off to both sides. But if you have the Bible, and then in, in addition, with the Bible as the authority, the foundation, the creeds and confessions, you have interpretation within history. 
That's actually the reason that I was wanting to go through the canons of Dort with the, on this upcoming student winter retreat, because it is such a problem today for Christians to be unaware of our history. The church did not begin when you received regeneration and joined a church. The church began with Christ, even before Christ. There were true believers in the Old Testament, but the New Covenant community began there with Christ in the book of Acts, and it has existed and has fought against heresy and has formed creedal statements and confessions that help, that guard, that keep safe. It's a providential means that God uses. So the second point, I know we're, I want some time for questions, so let me go quick here. Confessions are supported biblically. In other words, having a confession that is authoritative, that many across time the congregations can hold to, it's not a man-made idea. It's what we see the scriptures advocating for. So a few texts, 1 Corinthians 13, or 15, 3-5, Paul declared, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That phrase there is Paul confessing something. In 1 Timothy 3.16, he wrote, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then here's the confession. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and then taken up in glory, believed on in the world. And these, friends, are early creedal statements in the church. Creedal or confessional fragments are also found in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, 1 Peter 3, 18, 1 John 2, 22 and 5, 1, among other passages. The writer of the Hebrews instructs us to Hold fast our confession. And he speaks about the confession of our hope, 4.14 and 10.23. And so we see that having a confession of faith helps clarify what interpretations of Scripture are valid or invalid based upon what the Scriptures say in light of the collected wisdom found in the history of the church through people who have the same illuminating spirit that we have today. They're unifying. And they are subordinate to Scripture. But at the same time, they allow us to truly affirm sola scriptura. And to also then, to be critiqued on that topic. And having creeds and confessions also follows several examples from what we see in Scripture. Having them is biblical. All Christians, by nature, of bearing the name Christian, will confess something. But what will it be? Something clear and specific? and biblical, or something else. And I would put forward to you that a historic Protestant confession is a great blessing to the church. And so next time, when I'm not sure when that'll be, but my plan is to look at the history of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and then possibly think of types of subscription because it's not required that every member in the church believe the same thing about it as perhaps the elders would hold to it. And then if there's enough time, we'll start looking at the first chapter, which, of course, is on the Holy Scriptures itself. So let me pray briefly, and then we could um, take any questions that that might have. Our Father in heaven, we need you. We're grateful to be able to think about the importance of your word, Lord, and 
it would be wonderful, God, if, if all that was needed was a faithful and trustworthy copy of your word. But we understand, Lord God, that living in this fallen world, people bring to it presumptions and opinions. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to be faithful into your word and that you would give us as a church, as a, as a fellowship, wisdom uh, to see the great need to be detailed and to be in unity through something like a confession of faith. We do thank you for the grace and mercy that has been shown to us already. Help us to not have our eyes taken off you, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would bless the rest of our afternoon together as we perhaps even take some time for questions. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so anything I can elaborate on or... Yeah, the Ephesians 4 passage. Yeah. yeah. And then the unity and the guard against heresy. And the, it just reminded me why when a couple of my friends urged me towards professionalism about 10 years ago that those are really good reasons to. And when you look at church history. Uh, absolutely. Am I alone in that? Like when you hear the word... When you think people hear the word dogma, don't some of that feel like most people think that's a bad thing? Like, oh, you don't want to be... It's almost, right? It's like don't, being dogmatic is bad. Really, it's, it's not at all. It's a stated, firm opinion. Hopefully, it's a right dogma. You could have bad dogmas. I think people have a negative opinion on dogma because of the way they've seen it play out in the Roman Catholic tradition. For sure. Because it's pushed down by an authority that says they have the only true interpretation of Scripture, so you just have to eat it. You can't like, think it through and ascribe to it or not subscribe to it. So this is the, the wonderful freedom of confessions is you can say, I believe these words. And I've looked at the Scripture, and I, I with a clear conscience, can have large subscription to what's being said here. Yeah. So in my petition, dogma is a good thing. <laughs> That's right. We've got to get to say two plus two equals three. Oh uh, yeah, that would have been a good example. Yeah, that's one of those so, things I forgot about with our weird yeah, relativism. But, but along those lines, you know, you're you're opening like context or example of 52 genders. Um, I mean, for me, you just need to get to three, and I'm starting <laughs> to say already, no. Yeah. You know, I. Once you get past two, I say no, and this 53 is, is just a, a joke, but... It's either mental illness or spiritual warfare and probably a little bit of both. Yeah, well, we're in a, um, we're in a, a world where something like that now seems to be able to get some traction, and, and it's been getting more and more traction, even though there's more and more uh, fighting back against the absurdity of the a continual spectrum of gender identity, we have to be prepared to just stand up and say, no. That's right. There's, there's male and female, and that's that. Um, and the and Bible then, says so. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's, exactly. Yeah. And the uh, you know, recently, you know, one of the 
news article, the hockey player yeah, was asked that. to uh, support by wearing colors or something during the warm-ups of a hockey game in the National Hockey League and uh, to support uh, uh, LB, LGBTQ, uh, what, uh, all yet, yeah, the initials and yeah. the pluses and the minuses. <laughs> and he wouldn't do it, and he is just being uh, totally ostracized by the sports press that he would not support uh, gay pride or, yeah. or whatever. And he was citing his being Russian Orthodox or whatever, but he's standing by his uh, dogma, if you will, yeah. which just happens to align with our dogma. And I hope that we would likewise say, no, I'm, I'm not going to support that. It's not the truth. Absolutely. And there's going to be more, seemingly more and more times in these times that we live in now where we're going to have to be very, very willing to be strong, to have a backbone yeah. and say, no, that's not right. That's right. Well, all the historic confessions, they have pretty detailed chapters on marriage and man and woman and their creation. But if you look at a lot of like the modern, like non-denominational churches, they won't even touch on that subject at all, even just naming like Father, Son, the Spirit, maybe salvation and maybe uh, repentance or something along those lines in their short doctrinal statements. But it's interesting, a lot of your comments too, Ross, that I was thinking that this culture of your, everyone has their own truth and this relativism that is being championed, it's almost risen to a point of where now it stops at where if you want to have Christian values, well, you're not allowed to have those. Right. You can have any sort of dogma other than Christian dogma. And that's judgment upon us. All the more reason to be dogmatic for us as well. Good, good? Yeah, B. Yeah, I was just uh, in hearing what you were saying. It was uh, kind of reminding me a lot of like, how I used to think or how it's even modern days today where uh, what's champion is uh, the fact that you know we have so much knowledge in the world we have planes and cars and you know just you know we're so much farther than the previous generations yeah therefore they then say well why we why read these confessions or what the early church thought i mean we're so much smarter so obviously our theology is just way surpassed it but when you read people like in our past generations you know you're like wow these people have get the knowledge that obviously you know I didn't even know about myself yeah absolutely you know, so that's why having these confessions they have those treasures that were preserved also help us be you know standing on the right path to uh, Christ amen yeah and God is providentially ordering all of time and so I mean he raises up these teachers throughout history uh, for specific reasons and purposes to bless his church and so you're right. I mean, we can, we can open up Augustine, John Owen, the Puritans, Sibs. I mean, there's so many. And there's a lot of great um, writers in the church today as well. Uh, but there's a wealth of things. I mean, just think about it. 2,000 people have been thinking about God who is 
so vast and limitless and so much greater than we can fully comp- than we can comprehend. And people have been thinking about it for 2,000 years. And there's still, and longer than that even, and we have the Old Testament scriptures. And there is commentaries, Jewish commentaries on that. Like if you read John Gill, who was a Puritan time of Reformed Baptist, he refers back to these Jewish commentaries all the time on the Old Testament. It's like, I don't even know what primary sources he was reading. But I mean, there's just, there's a wealth of information out there. And it's one thing I think makes us glad for glory and to think that we'll have even an eternal time to meditate upon the glories of who our God is. It's, it's a great thing. So definitely grateful for the men throughout uh, history and the, and the women who have contributed. Good to go. 324, the Spanish congregation will be coming in. So yeah, so next week we'll probably be having a sermon through the psalm, through a specific psalm. And then um, when we come back to the Second London Confession at some point, we'll deal with the history of it, maybe, maybe one thing other, and then we'll get to the text. The first chapter is on the scriptures. We won't be able to do all of the chapter in one setting because it's like 10 paragraphs on the scriptures. So it has a lot to say about God's word even. So good to spend time together, church.